from Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, October 2nd. I'm Marco Werman. A peaceful democratic transition in Georgia. It's a first for the former Soviet state, where revolution and political chaos have been the norm. This is a really big deal, not just for Georgia, but for the entire region, which is watching very closely. And later, comparing our presidential debates with those in France, candidates there don't um their way through an answer. They puff. It's a great French national characteristic of irritation. They sort of go... PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece. The saga continues at 165 Eaton Place, and the lives of masters and servants have never been so captivating as new arrivals make their mark and dark secrets are revealed. A new season of Upstairs, Downstairs, Sunday, October 7th at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. It could be a first for the nation of Georgia, a peaceful democratic transfer of power, something it hasn't had in its post-Soviet history. Today, President Mikhail Saakashvili conceded defeat for his party in parliamentary elections. That means his opponent, Bidzina Ivanishvili, now has the right to become prime minister. So a democratic but divided government, perhaps. The BBC's Natalia Antalava is in Tbilisi, the Georgian capital. She says Ivanishvili captured voters' imagination. He's an immensely wealthy man who has basically been writing checks left and right. Someone was telling me today how well uh, people in his coalition are currently paid. But he has also managed to have an army of lobbyists, I mean, a huge army of lobbyists in in Washington, uh, in Europe as well. The village where he's from, that whole, the region where he's from, the entire place um, is basically, he pays the gas and the electricity bill for everyone who lives there. The hospitals are free and so on. And so this is why so many people think that he's the man who will come and apply that same model to the rest of Georgia, basically lift the rest of Georgia out of poverty. Now, speaking of money, uh, you're looking right now where you are in Tbilisi, uh, far into the hills uh, at uh, the mansion of Bidzina Ivanishvili. Uh, what does that look like? Give us a sense of his wealth. It is one of the most bizarre buildings. It overlooks the city. It actually looks a bit like a spaceship. (laughs) Metal and glass structure with helicopters, pads all over it. It's all lit up right now. And it's completely out of proportion. And some people say that his wealth is completely out of proportion with a country as small and as poor as Georgia, $6 billion. Mm. That's Georgia's entire state budget. And that's how wealthy he is. For years and years, he lived the most reclusive lifestyle, never seen in public. He would be the philanthropist behind the opera house in Tbilisi and various charities and so on, but it had nothing to do with politics until last year he announced that he was going into politics, and here we are today with Bidzina Ivanishvili in power. 
So what does that mean for Georgia's current government, the one that swept to power in the peaceful Rose Revolution nine years ago? I mean, is it a good thing to have an oligarch with this Xanadu in the sky as prime minister? Well, I think that depends who you ask. I think there are plenty of people who voted for him who will say that it's an excellent thing and it's time for change. For many people who voted uh, for the government, see it as a disaster because the campaign, the run-up, I, I, I don't know if you can hear it. But yeah, I was going to ask you, what's all that celebrations. hubbub? Yeah. That's right. That's the celebrations that Bidino Ivanishvili's supporters celebrating the victory in the streets. But there are plenty of people here who are very concerned about what will happen to the incredible progress that Georgia has made in the last 10 years. Mm, and what since, are their concerns? Um, what are their big uh, worries? The biggest worry, I think, is that this is going to turn into a, an ugly revenge government where, you know, the new ministers, uh, Mr. Ivanishvili has already said that no one, you know, no no existing minister will be allowed to stay on his post. So uh, the whole government, uh, the whole cabinet will be formed by them. That means that, you know, Georgia's current young 30-something English-speaking ministers who have been sort of helping along Saakashvili's agenda to get Georgia closer to NATO and so on, they will be gone. The good thing is that they will be gone into the opposition. And for 10 years since Saakashvili's arrival to power, Georgia's biggest problem has been that it has not had a decent opposition. And this is Georgia's first peaceful transition of power. And this is a really big deal, not just for Georgia, but for the entire region, which is watching very closely. Yeah. And how big a deal is it for, say, a country like the United States, which uh, Saakashvili has been kind of allied with in the past few years? Georgia has been a very loyal ally, you know, sending troops to Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, this does not mean that this relationship will cease to exist. I think right now the Ivanishvili's rhetoric is quite similar to that when it comes to foreign policy. It's quite similar to that of Saakashvili's government. He does say that he wants the country to join NATO and he wants um, to keep the pro-Western, the, the country on the pro-Western course and so on. The BBC's Natalia Antelava in Tbilisi in Georgia, reporting on the surprising apparent shift of leadership in Georgia, the first change of leadership through an election. Natalia, thank you very much. Thank you. It's a big week for politics here in the U.S., too. The first Obama-Romney debate is scheduled for tomorrow in Denver, and that got us thinking about how other countries handle presidential debates. Christopher Dickey is Newsweek's Paris bureau chief. He says political debates in France tend to be rougher than American ones, and that goes for the last French presidential debate in Paris. The debate between uh, François Hollande and Nicolas Sarkozy in May leading up to the election of Hollande uh, was uh, just really a, a knockdown, drag-out affair. It all sounds very intellectual because the French like to be very cool and part of the game is to draw your opponent off sides and make him look like he's totally out of control and crazy especially in the case of Sarkozy, who was a little out of control and crazy. And tell us uh, what you mean. I mean, how was he out of control? A big reason that Sarkozy lost the election is that he's not a man with a lot of obvious self-control. In fact, he's a man who, with a lot of obvious lack of self-control. He's very twitchy. He's nervous. He's very, very intense. People have compared him to sort of Joe Pesci, the gangster <laughs> actor. And Hollande, his whole game was to appear presidential and cool, but not weak. So even though both of them were citing numbers and statistics all the way through the debate, the real game was a psychological game to see if Sarkozy would blow up or get too belligerent, and he did, whereas Hollande was expected to be sort of a milk toast and wound up looking much more firm and resolute 
And it, it really put him over the top, although he was already leading in the polls at that point. In the French debates, though, it's got to be said, there's a huge window of opportunity to really kind of like throw yourself under the bus. I mean, three hours to debate with no notes. That's incredible. Well, that's right. And both candidates are very smart and very educated. But, you know, you actually touch on a, on a key point in that debate, which is that Sarkozy did not go to the elite school that most of French administrators and top French politicians went to, the École Nationale d'Administration, or ENA as it's called. Mm. And they form a very, very tight-knit elite group at the top of French politics. Sarkozy did not go to the ENA, and he did not have advanced degrees, and he always felt a little bit inferior about his education. And at several points, he said to Hollande, you know, don't teach me, don't instruct me, don't give me grades, this kind of thing. It was basically an effort to sort of make Hollande look like an elite professorial type. I mean, it's very hard to imagine in an American televised debate that people could go on so long. But it's also very hard to imagine that you'd have the president of the country calling his challenger again and again to his face a liar, which mm. is what Sarkozy was doing. How much do French candidates um in a debate? Because, I mean, France is notorious for that, uh, you know. Well, you know, <clears throat> what can I say? Uh, there isn't a lot of umming. There is a lot of puffing in French debates. What do you, you mean? Know that, well, I, it's a great French national characteristic of irritation where somebody says something to you, and I, I don't know if you can hear it on the radio, but they sort of go, Oh, right. Like they puff that. out their cheeks like, yeah, oh, exactly. this question, exasperation again. <laughs> exactly. There's a lot of that in French debates. In fact, I think one of the things they work on is to try and tone that down. French schools really do drive into them when they're very young, how to stand up and how to make a presentation. And if there's any problem for an Anglo-Saxon listener, it's that they tend to be too Cartesian in their debates where they, everything is putting forth an idea and then three substantive points to support the idea. It's an extremely mechanical way mm. of making an argument, but it's very hard for them to escape it. And so you see that all the time in public debates. Now, if you had to compare France and the United States, their uh, debating kind of formats, uh, would you say uh, the U.S. is more easygoing than the French? No, actually, I have the feeling when I watch American debates that they are more scripted, mm. that all the great zinger lines that you get out of American debates are ones that have been plotted through endless practice sessions uh, where they sort of figure out when they're going to say, you're no John Kennedy or whatever the zinger would be in any of the presidential or vice presidential debates. And I think that that exists in France. They certainly do rehearse. But ultimately, in a three-hour debate with no notes, you can only remember so many talking points. You've got to get out there and put yourself on the line and really engage. And I think that's the difference. I, I often feel that watching an American debate, they're really not talking to each other. They're talking in parallel universes where each one has his own points that he wants to make. And that's really all that they're there to do. Christopher Dickey, Newsweek magazine's Paris bureau chief. Thanks very much. Thank you, Marco. It was a pleasure. The state of the Earth's environment can seem pretty depressing at times. Scientists say humans are putting huge stresses on the natural systems we all depend on. But some parts of nature remain far beyond human influence. The world's environment editor Peter Thompson was reminded of that when he heard a new sound recording. That's it. That's the sound. It's not crickets. It's not whales. 
Nope, this loopy song's been around a lot longer than either of them. Bear with me for a minute. I will let you know what it is, but let me work my way around to it. Life is biology, and without really trying, we've invented millions of ways to mess with the Earth's basic biological processes. We're seeing the results in mass extinctions and the destruction of ecosystems. We're even messing with the Earth's basic chemistry, from the atmosphere to the oceans. But the physical forces that helped make life possible? Well, here, finally, we may have found something that can't be touched by human hands. Take, for instance, the Earth's magnetic field. Our planet has a big iron core, and as the Earth spins, it creates a powerful magnetic field that extends into space and forms a sort of protective bubble around the planet. It's called the magnetosphere, and although you can't see it, scientists draw it as a kind of big donut tucked around the Earth. It deflects most of the charged particles blasting off the sun. Without it, that solar wind would basically blow away much of our atmosphere. And here's where that weird, loopy sound comes in. In August, NASA launched a couple of satellites to study the area where the Earth's magnetic field meets the solar wind. And it turns out that a lot of those charged particles create radio waves that can be captured and turned into sound. Folks have long been recording these sounds from Earth, but NASA says these are the best recordings ever made of what they call chorus. It's physics at work. It's part of the reason we're here. And as far as we know, it's largely impervious to human impact. And as someone who covers those other impacts every day, it's nice to know there are some things that we just can't wreck. And that as long as the Earth keeps spinning, it'll also keep making its weird and wonderful music. For The World, I'm Peter Thompson. We've posted a NASA video that explains the science behind Earth's chorus. That's at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon, October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. And by Half the Sky, turning oppression into opportunity for women worldwide. That's tonight at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Jamaica's unofficial motto may be no worry. But if you're gay in Jamaica, there's plenty to worry about. The country has a law that makes gay sex illegal. And according to Human Rights Watch, Jamaica has an epidemic of homophobic violence. But for the first time in the country's history, there's hope that things could get better for gays and lesbians there. Tristram Corton with station WLRN in Miami reports from Kingston. Jamaica's only gay rights organization is at the end of a long driveway in a quiet Kingston neighborhood. Hello? Hi. Hi. It's called J-Flag, Jamaica Forum for Lesbians, All Sexuals, and Gays. But there's no sign on its door. Outside, there's a surveillance camera. And inside, there's a panic alarm connected to a 24-hour guard service. Security is so tight, the staff all use pseudonyms. Well, still currently, I don't use my face or any media. I began the work doing using a pseudonym. I, I use the name Jason McFarlane. That's Dane Lewis, JFLAG's 37-year-old director. He's the only one using his real name. Lewis is no firebrand. He's soft-spoken and thoughtful, yet he may have one of the country's most dangerous jobs. In 2000, a JFLAG founder fled the country after repeated threats. 
In 2004, another founder was killed with a machete during a robbery in his home. And Jay Flagg's last director? He was attacked by a mob in 2007 and given political asylum in Canada. But Lewis is staying. I know that we all can't leave. Somebody has to stay and fight the fight. The animosity towards gays in Jamaica is deeply rooted in the country's Christian traditions. People there often equate homosexuals with pedophiles and other sexual predators. World is in trouble. Anytime Mojibantan come, Batty boy get up and run. A gunshot near back. For years, dancehall songs like Boom Bye Bye celebrated violence against gays and lesbians. At the Halfway Tree bus station in downtown Kingston, the idea of gays living openly here provokes violent outbursts. Stab them. Chop them up, this man says. He's using the Jamaican slang, batty man, for gays. No batty man around on the street. I don't believe that Jamaica or me or anybody would be willing to accept the fact that two men can walk and kiss down the road. And if you saw that, how would you react? I would react violent and probably beat one of them because definitely that's against everything I believe in. Four years ago, then-Prime Minister Bruce Golding was interviewed by the BBC. Do you, in the future, want to live in a Jamaica where a gay man or a gay woman can be in the cabinet? Sure they can be in the cabinet, not mine. Well, they can't be in yours. Not mine. Well, Jamaica is one of the most homophobic countries in the world. That's Lloyd Diagalar, a human rights activist in Kingston. When we had the last government under the Jamaica Labour Party... The then prime minister said, not in my cabinet, meaning that he would never appoint a gay person to his cabinet. And that was a signal to homophobia in Jamaica, and homophobia became even more rampant. In 2011, reports to JFLAG of violence and discrimination against gays were triple what they were in 2008, when the prime minister made his comment. The U.S.-based group Immigration Equality handles asylum cases based on sexual orientation. Steve Rawls is the organization's spokesman. He says the group has more clients from Jamaica than any other country in the world. Many of our clients from Jamaica, especially lesbian clients, report to immigration equality stories of horrific violence, including family members who find individuals to rape their daughters as a method of correcting their sexual orientation. But last year, something surprising happened. Jamaica's two candidates for prime minister met for a televised debate, and the moderator asked this question. Mr. Holness, Jamaica has an international reputation for homophobia. What do you think of former prime minister Golding's statement that homosexuals were not welcome in his cabinet, and do you share that sentiment? Candidate Andrew Holness dodged the question. His opponent, Portia Simpson-Miller, did not. I do not support the position of the former prime minister because people should be appointed to position based on their ability. No one should be discriminated against because of their, so, uh, their sexual orientation. She also said the government should revisit the anti-gay law. No Jamaican politician of her stature had ever said anything like this in public, especially while running for office. And then she won. But since taking office, the prime minister hasn't addressed Jamaica's so-called buggery law. I doubt she's really sincere about it. That's activist Lloyd Diagalar. Well, it's been 100 days since she was elected, and she has said nothing, she has done nothing. Others argue for more patience. 
Horace Helps is a journalist with Jamaica's Observer newspaper. It will happen. It's going to have to be skillfully done. I'm sure they're not going to wait until the last year before election. Dane Lewis of JFLAG is willing to wait. He's working patiently, behind the scenes, from his unmarked office hidden down a long driveway. That question posed to the candidates for prime minister back in December? What do you think of former Prime Minister Golding's statement that homosexuals were not welcome in his cabinet? Lewis was responsible for that. We have a number of allies in the media. One of those allies was moderating the debate. She ensured that the question was asked and didn't let up until she got an answer. Lewis remembers exactly where he was when those words were spoken. I started listening in my car. He rushed home to let his dogs out and continued listening on a portable radio. I also had to be reserved as I walked the dogs because I could jump and scream as I would have wanted to. I'm sure my neighbors would have heard me say, yes, yes. That's because celebrating might reveal that he's gay. And for now, in Jamaica, that's just too dangerous. For The World, I'm Tristram Corton, Kingston, Jamaica. Tristram reported that story with a grant from the Nation Institute's Investigative Fund. Sometimes sports can help ease tensions, and sometimes sports diplomacy falls short. Listen to this story and you'll see what I mean. Spain's FC Barcelona professional soccer team is considered one of the best in the world. It's got fans all over the globe, including in the Middle East. The team recently tried to harness its popularity in the region to promote peace. It invited youth players from both Israel and the Palestinian territories to train at its world-famous academy in Barcelona. The club got lots of praise for that. But now FC Barcelona is under fire from Palestinians. That's after the team invited former Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit to come see an upcoming big match against fellow Spanish giants Real Madrid. Shalit was held hostage by Palestinian militants in Gaza for five years until his release last October. The invitation by Barcelona drew anger from Palestinian groups. Barcelona responded by inviting several Palestinians to the same game. They include Mahmoud Sarsak, a soccer player who was recently released by Israel after a three-month hunger strike in jail. Sarsak at first suggested he would attend, but then he held a press conference to decline the invite, saying he couldn't accept any suggestion of equality between Shalit and himself. Officials at FC Barcelona are now in damage control mode. Their latest statement on the matter was a clarification. They said they never actually invited either Shalit or Sarsak, but merely accepted requests on behalf of each for game tickets. Perhaps they should stick to just selling their tickets instead. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Singer Chim Maia brought American soul music to his native Brazil, where he became a star. But he got his musical start in New York, where some still remember him. He would get further out than anybody else. <laughs> you could see that he had the potential. You know, it was all there. That story coming up on The World. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, hosting 25 global heroes at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 7th. Join Medtronic Global Heroes on Facebook to celebrate these extraordinary athletes, all running with medical conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, or Parkinson's disease. The Medtronic Global Heroes, a diagnosis didn't end the run. And by Half the Sky, turning oppression into opportunity for women worldwide. That's tonight at 9, 8 central on PBS. 
I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. One bit of news all of us hunger for daily, almost without exception, is the weather. Everyone can use a forecast to plan their day or week. Well, right now we're going to talk about something a bit different, a project called oldweather.org. It's a citizen science effort, which we first told you about a couple of years ago. Climate researchers in Britain opened up old Royal Navy ships' logs from around World War I, and they invited anyone to come to the website, look at the scanned pages, and input the weather data they saw. The world's Clark Boyd originally covered the story for us. And remind us, Clark, why digitize old ships' logs? What can they tell us about climate change? Well, these are these old logs that the British Navy ships kept. And every six hours, without fail, they would note the ship's position, what the weather was like, barometric pressure, wind speed, all of those sorts of things. And and, and when I did the original story, Marco, it was funny because I would have – I had one historian tell me, you know, it didn't matter if they were in the middle of a battle with mm-hmm. another ship. They, they would stop and take note of the weather. So what they hope to do is by, by crowdsourcing this and getting people to help input this data, they could get this um, amazing new set of information about where these ships were, what the weather was like in that particular place at that particular time. Now, the crown to which this project was sourced could be described, I guess, loosely as NERS. But thank goodness for these NERS because they've been so obsessive and comprehensive about uh, inputting the data. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think what happened was is that there was so much more than just nerds who got interested in doing this. People with an interest in history, especially interest in naval history, maybe they had a relative who served on one of these ships. They, they managed to, to do this in just two years. And this was looking at every page of those logs, thousands and thousands of pages, three times because they had to, you know, they wanted to triple check that they were getting the data right. 1.6 million new pieces of information about the climate at that time. It's, uh, you know, for, for researchers, it's just incredible. No, that's, uh, that's the data. But visually, how does it appear? Because that's well, incredible. Well, I mean, it's, it's not just the fact that all this data is created. It's what people have done with it. Right, Marco? I mean, you've got um, uh, people who have come in and taken that data and essentially plotted out uh, on a world map where all of these uh, Royal Navy ships were moving at the time, and they've put them into, you know, visualization programs that kind of, you know, show these ships as, as a t- kind of a, in a time-lapse way, and they're, they're flying all across the globe. Um, you know, I can, I can talk about it, but the best thing is to come to theworld.org and, and take a look at some of the uh, visualizations and links that we have there. So what's next for old weather? So because they've, they're done with this project already, I think it shocked them how quickly they got done with it. So what they've done is they've moved on to a new set of logs about ships in the Arctic. And so you can go up to oldweather.org and work on that project now. It'll be a whole new set of climate data. The world's Clark Boyd, thank you so much for the update. You're welcome, Marco. Now that we've given you the weather, as it were, let's switch the channel to Al Jazeera. The Qatar-based news network has always been controversial. After the invasion of Iraq in 2003, Al Jazeera was denounced by right-wing pundits in the U.S. as enemy media. Since then, it's established itself as a global competitor in the news business. It's expanded in both Arabic and English, on TV and online. But now Al Jazeera is facing financial pressures and trying to figure out where growth is most likely. On the news side, it's recently scaled back some operations. Its English-language channel now has one anchor in Qatar as opposed to four around the world. But the network is also expanding into the world of sport. And the key to their success may in part lie with their funding from the Qatari monarchy. There was a a bit of an insider joke that whenever Al Jazeera encountered a problem, they would just throw money at it. 
Philip Sieb is a professor of journalism at the University of Southern California and author of The Al Jazeera Effect. I think the royal family has grown tired of that, and we're not going to see that so much anymore. But the, the model is still for growth. It is particularly concerned about reaching a larger audience in the United States, where it has encountered politically inspired difficulties uh, ever since it began. Now, they're also going to push into sports. How is that going to help their, their bottom line? And they're, they're very focused on European soccer, which is kind of a niche market here in the U.S., uh, right, but they, they're gambling that uh, particularly by the time the World Cup comes to Qatar in 2022, that audience will have expanded. Al Jazeera has always had sports channels, and they are the most profitable part of the corporation. So uh, this is a very logical expansion for them, and it ties right into the World Cup. How about the Arabic language channel uh, at Al Jazeera, you know, their, their main output? How is it coping with all the changes taking place in the Arab world? Is that pushing Al Jazeera generally to realign their focus? I think it is. It, and it's a very interesting story because one of the outcomes of the Arab revolutions of the, of the past year plus uh, is the arising of a, a new model for media. And, and the countries that have, have shaken off their dictatorships there are freer media now, and that means you have local television channels starting to pop up, and they offer the same kind of unfettered news that Al Jazeera has specialized in. So I think Al Jazeera, while it will continue to, to be a very dominant regional news channel, faces some interesting competition with local news, basically, uh, arising in countries such as Egypt. So, Philip, you mentioned earlier some of the political difficulties Al Jazeera has been facing uh, in, in the United States as they try to get broadcasts on various uh, cable outlets. What specifically have they faced? Well, they, they still have not escaped from the, the label that was put on them by the Bush administration as being uh, uh, the, the terrorist television channel. Uh, they've received some very good publicity over the past year, particularly because they were the go-to channel for people wanting to see what was going on uh, in the Middle East, beginning with the events of early 2011. And even Secretary of State Hillary Clinton told a congressional committee that Al Jazeera was providing real news. Uh, but they still are finding resistance from uh, from the cable companies and the satellite companies in the U.S., and I attribute that to politics, certainly not due to the quality of what they're producing. They're, they deliver a very interesting, good journalistic product. Al Jazeera has always advertised itself as being the voice of the global south, and I think that's a voice that the United States needs to hear, whether it comes from Al Jazeera or somebody else. It's just that, for the most part, Al Jazeera is the only television channel that provides that. So they're not terrorists. I mean, they're... no, no, <laughs> it, that's uh, that's that's uh, nasty labeling that uh, lingers, and I think is symptomatic of larger uh, attitudes, broader attitudes in the United States about Arabs and Muslims, which is very unfortunate. But this uh, it spills over onto the Al Jazeera product. Philip Sieb at the University of Southern California and author of The Al Jazeera Effect. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. For today's GeoQuiz, we're trying to flag down a hopper. There are lots of transportation options available in the Dutch city of Amsterdam. You can glide along in a canal boat or take a high-speed train out to Seepol Airport or just pedal around the city like many Amsterdam commuters do every day. 
But there's yet another mode of transport we want to tell you about. We call it hopper. Uh, hopper. Um, yeah, it's like hopper, but hopper. This hopper is green and comes with a driver like a taxi. Top speed, just 15 miles an hour, and it's quiet. You can flag one down outside Amsterdam's main train station. So can you guess what a hopper is? Or more to the point, can you name Amsterdam's landmark transportation hub where trains, taxis, and now hoppers are waiting to take you away? Well, the answer is coming up. A judge in Pennsylvania today postponed that state's new voter ID law. The ruling means registered voters in Pennsylvania will be able to cast their ballots this November without showing an ID. Critics of voter ID laws say the measures could affect the outcome of the U.S. presidential election by restricting who gets to vote. Meanwhile, in Argentina, they're arguing about the opposite. A bill currently before the Argentine Senate would dramatically expand voting rights. From Buenos Aires, Eilish O'Neill has more. 25% inflation, restrictions on imports, and the perception that crime is on the rise have led to falling approval ratings for President Cristina Fernández de Kirchner. So critics say the government's new law, which would give the vote to young people and to recent immigrants, is merely an attempt to grab votes in upcoming elections. Many immigrants from nearby nations, such as Bolivia, Peru, and Paraguay, support the current government because of its liberal health and education policies. And opposition politicians say the government would use its access to media and to resources to brainwash the nation's youth. But Senator Elena Corregido, one of the co-authors of the bill, says it's about time that the Argentine government listened to one of society's most vibrant sectors. Los jóvenes son los que generan la contracultura. It is young people who create the counterculture, who can see reality from another point of view, who question all of society's ideas and prejudices. So we by no means think that they'll be pulled along like cattle to the market. If the voting age were lowered to 16, all Argentines would be able to vote at some point during high school. Some of those who would get to vote under the new law aren't so sure it's a good idea. 17-year-old Max Grieben says people his age haven't formed their own political opinions yet. I see that when they speak, it's really their parents speaking. And if they had the possibility to vote, they would do as their parents did. While some opposition politicians agree with the idea of lowering the voting age, almost all of them object to another part of the plan, to allow recent immigrants to vote. Senator Maria Stonsoro, an immigrant herself, gave up her Bolivian citizenship at the age of 18. In the United States, do you have foreigners that can vote for president? In the U.S., do you have foreigners that can vote for president? I don't think so. In two years, you're not sure if you're staying or you're going. You're not so involved in what will happen to that country. If you really want to get involved and decide the future of a country, you should be a citizen of that country. The bill proposed by President Kirchner's party, Frente para la Victoria, would allow foreigners with two years of permanent residency to vote in national elections. Sergio Friedemann, who teaches high school and college political science classes, says the new law would be beneficial because it would allow foreign residents to choose their authorities and because it would make poli-sci a whole lot more interesting and relevant for students. He isn't convinced by the argument that young people and recent immigrants aren't ready to vote. What is the ability to vote, and who can measure it? Are people able to vote at 18, at 40? The same argument was used in 1947 when Eva Perón advocated the vote for women. 
No, women aren't able to vote because they're very sensitive, very easily manipulated. And today, who would dare to say that? The bill to expand voting rights is currently being debated in the Argentine Senate, and if passed, would then proceed to the Chamber of Deputies. For The World, I'm Alicia Neal in Buenos Aires. We have more coverage of voting issues, including a story about voting in languages other than English here in the U.S. That's all at theworld.org. Back to Amsterdam now and that city's newest transportation option. It's a kind of taxi service called Hopper, or as the Dutch say, Hopper. Lawrence Vanderland helps manage the company. Hopper is a green initiative. Uh, it's a green electric scooter, which you can get at Amsterdam Central Station or wherever in Amsterdam you can flag them down or you can call them wherever you want in uh, the city center. Right. Okay. So Amsterdam Central Station, that is the hot spot for the Hoppers. And uh, it's the answer to our geo quiz today. Why the electric scooter? I mean, that seems kind of counterintuitive to the whole kind of Dutch green, let's ride a bike idea. Biking, uh, of, of course, uh, the Dutch uh, are known for their bikes uh, in the, around the world. And um, I think electric scooters is the future, especially because it's more sustainable. To bike to your work from Utrecht to Amsterdam is a bit impossible. So there's a lot of commuters on trains. And this idea actually generated uh, was generated because we wanted to improve the pre- and post-transport to train stations to make it available for people to go to the train stations easier uh, and reducing car use like that. How do you actually hail a hopper if you're not at Central Station? Well, if you see them, you can flag them down. Um, they have a, a like an occupied sign. Uh, if it's not on, uh, you can hail them down uh, like that, or you can order it by our mobile app. What about the silence of these electric scooters? I mean, that could be a problem for pedestrians, no? We have two horns. Uh, one is a quite loud lo- horn that we can use for uh, cars and, 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 and like trucks. But we also have a, a quieter horn, and it's uh, designed it's especially because we, we knew we were going to uh, uh, get bikers and pedestrians, and we don't want to scare them when we uh, use our horn. So we have a quieter horn that we actually, uh, it's not really uh, aggressive. And are you going to be running them uh, 24-7? At the moment, uh, we started off uh, only operational on working days, mm. so on Monday to Friday, and uh, from 8 o'clock in the morning till 8 o'clock in the evening, because we think uh, our transportation is uh, foremost for our commuters, but also we have our citizens in the city. And uh, the thing is, in the evenings, it becomes a little bit more difficult because people could be intoxicated, and uh, that could be a problem at that time. Yeah, I was going to ask you what, what happens if you get those late-night revelers drinking too much Heineken in your neighbor and they start tipping on the back of the scooter. Exactly. It's, and it's a personal thing. So in, uh, it's, you're so close to the driver, and uh, you don't want to get harassed like that. And uh, it's a safety first. Again, uh, it's so important for us. Lawrence Vanderlaan speaking with us about the Hopper Company. He's based uh, not too far from Central Station in Amsterdam. That's the answer to our GeoQuiz today. Lawrence, thank you very much. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank okay. you for having us. This is PRI. PRI's The World is supported by WGBH and Masterpiece. The saga continues at 165 Eaton Place, and the lives of masters and servants have never been so captivating as new arrivals make their mark and dark secrets are revealed. A new season of Upstairs, Downstairs, Sunday, October 7th at 9, 8 Central on PBS. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Our last story today is a musical one that I knew only a little about until a few weeks ago. The subject is a Brazilian singer named Chim Maia. It's pronounced Chim, but spelled T-I-M. 
I knew one of Chimaya's songs, a cool soul number called O Camino do Bem. Now the record label Luaka Bop has released a large collection of Chimaya songs. The guy who runs the label, Yale Evelev, heard I was interested in speaking with Chimaya. He called and left a voicemail saying that Chimaya had died in 1998 at the age of 55. But Yale Evelev offered a few other people who knew Chimaya and would be willing to talk. We'll hear from one of them in a moment. But then Yale proceeded to relay a story he had heard about Chimaya. This is the late 60s now. Apparently Chimaya returned to New York from London and paid a visit to his record label, Phillips. He went to England and got 200 tabs of acid, and when he came back, he went to Phillips, and he went into everybody in the record company's office and said, open your mouth and stick out your tongue. I'm going to give you something. It's not addictive. It's not going to harm you at all, but it's going to take you to a beautiful place. And so he gave everybody a tab of acid at the the record label, and uh, he said, I freed freed the record label. Someone who performed with Chim Maia early in the Brazilian funk master's career was Roger Bruno. He says his story left on my voicemail rings true. Yeah, I mean, when, when Chim believed something, Chim believed something. And he believed it all the way. He would get further out than anybody else. <laughs> you could see that he had the potential. You know, it was all there. But he, uh, when I knew him, he, he hadn't gotten anywhere near where he... Uh, <laughs> He would uh, turn on the entire office of a a record company. (laughs) These days, Roger Bruno lives in Springfield, Massachusetts. But in the early 60s, he and Chim Maya were in a band called The Ideals. They were both living in Tarrytown, New York. A young upstart musician, Maya had come to the U.S. from Brazil in the late 50s. But he got deported a few years later for drug possession. As Roger Bruno says, Chim Maya was out there. To get a musical sense of that, here's a track, Brother, Father, Mother, Sister. Chimaya's deportation back to Brazil in 1963 turned out to be a good career move. He scored a bunch of hits back home. Ironically, says Roger Bruno, much earlier, that's not where Chimaya wanted to make it. I think he wanted to make it in the States. I mean, that was, he really had that dream. And uh, and, he, and yet, musical culture in Brazil is so fertile, and, yeah. and there's so much going on there in its own right. Yeah. It's kind of funny that he would leave a, leave a country like Brazil that yeah. has so much going for it musically yeah. to come here and try and make it musically. Yeah. Well, I think I think that he heard outside of the Brazilian rhythms, and I think he heard outside of the Brazilian culture, and I think that that uh, probably had something to do with his wanting to be here. Right. I mean, the, this collection that's coming out right now uh, from Luaka Bop Records it has more songs on it in English than, yeah. than in Portuguese. Yeah. The dance is over. Face me. There's a lot to live. There's a lot to romance. 
So Roger Bruno, I mean, his music was brilliant. Pinpoint for us, where was his genius? Where did his, where did his genius lie? I think that he could kind of visualize things that, that uh, other people at the time couldn't. And I think that he wasn't afraid to to get out of a mold. I mean, that whole idea about putting uh, uh, pop sensibilities over Brazilian... I mean, nobody was really doing that. And he was never afraid to, to make that leap. To my way of thinking, that's the mark of a, of a true artist, somebody who's not afraid to take that step. When was the last time you two spoke? Oh, gosh, in probably in 64. Oh, right. So it's been ages. Oh, yeah. And uh, we, uh, we went our separate ways. I mean, I didn't find out about his career until fairly recently. Uh, a guy named Alan Thayer, who uh, wrote a piece for uh, Wax Poetics, sent me an email. And out of the blue, I get this email. And, and uh, he says, are you the Roger Bruno who wrote New Love with, uh, with Chimaya? And I was, I was totally floored. And because uh, I had no idea. So mm. I said, yeah. And so things kind of progressed. And then I st- started finding out more about his career. But I, you know, I have to say one thing. My time with Jim, he was very focused. He was very um, clean cut, wore a tie. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, um, always very punctual. I mean, I'm told that uh, later on that was not necessarily the case. Um, always had his, his eye mm. uh, on the prize. You know? And it, so uh, apparently he developed further. <laughs> It is pretty remarkable. I mean, despite all the antics and the anarchic nuttiness that, that Chimaya thrust on others, I mean, the, the music on this collection makes me wonder where has it been all my life? Because uh-huh. it's, the, these are wonderful songs. And, yeah. you know, your your story about, you know, not really knowing kind of a, about the music career. Yeah. But what do you think that says about the music industry, industry today, that there are all these like great well, artists that we don't ever hear about until yeah. kind of it's too late. Yeah. You know, the industry is always looking for packages. You know, they're always looking to package something. And um, they're always looking for something that sounds like whatever number one was last week. You know, and if you listen to a lot of things today, there's, you know, depending upon the producer, there's a lot of similarity in sound. You know, the arrangements are very similar. The instrumentation is very similar. And so you get these records that sound, you know, very stylized and very packaged. I think with the uh, rise of the indies, to me, that's kind of the oasis. Roger, I'm wondering, uh, have you gotten a copy yet of uh, this uh, latest release from the World Psychedelic Classic series on Luaka Bapin, uh, featuring all of Chimaya's great tunes? Yeah, I just got it. That voice is that voice. To listen after all this time was really, um, really kind of amazing. It just uh, brought up a lot of things and... uh, it's, it's a good collection. Roger Bruno, great to speak with you. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. That was musician Roger Bruno speaking to us about the late Brazilian funk master Chim Maia, whom you're hearing now. The CD is Nobody Can Live Forever, The Existential Soul of Chim Maia. Hey, you want to hear the voicemail I got from Yale Evelove of Luaka Bop Records, where he mentioned several other stories about Maya? We've got that at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported in part by the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI, Public Radio International.